90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Pretty good. Just busy doing what I imagine lots of professors are doing, which is grading midterms. <laughs> yes, that has been what every single person that's teaching right now that I talk to can say, what are you doing? Oh, grading tests. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, there's not enough beer in the world, but I digress. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there is the uh, the coffee productivity curve that you have to take into account as well. <laughs> that is true. I have ingested more caffeine in the last week than I have in years, I think. Well, probably since you left OU. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I've got uh, my second tumbler of coffee in my hand since I got home at about six o'clock. Oh, man, you know, it's bad news when it's the evening and you're still on coffee and haven't transitioned over to, you know, harder substances. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's been uh, it's been really busy. I've actually been running a lot of models. Uh, so, you know, several hundred thousand models and trying to mm -hmm. figure out ways to look at the output of all these. So that's been kind of fun. So basically nothing useful is what you've been doing. <laughs> well, you know, I know you would say that, uh, but it's, it's semi-useful. We'll say that. Uh, these okay. models have turned out to be pretty interesting. Okay. But that's not what we're going to talk about exactly because, and because I've known you a while, I know you have a beef on how people present their data and it being the middle of, you know, getting ready to go to AGU season and lots of people are defending coming December. I think that this is a good time to revisit how data gets presented, whether it's fake data, like your models, or <laughs> or real data, like the other scientists do. Yeah, and no, I mean, I've had to think a lot about, uh, with this huge, complex data set, how to best present it. And we've also been, you know, submitting some papers recently that we've really had to squeeze a lot of data in. And I've been going to a lot of talks. Uh, a couple of which this week I, I texted you and I said I want to talk about this because I saw some plots that made me physically angry. <laughs> I'd like to say you're the only person I know that could get physically angry from that, but no. Um, the, <laughs> the grad students in the office next door to me spend a lot of time talking about this too, actually. And um, I talked to them before we recorded this just to sort of get their input as well because they have very high expectations for graphs and what they look like when they're presented so it's not just you <laughs> there are other people that have these issues too yeah i mean you know a picture is worth a thousand words but some people the thousand words are mostly explicative <laughs> uh, for their pictures <laughs> i love it when you get worked up over software issues so uh... Mm. Oh, don't even get me started on Windows, but that's another <laughs> time. So <laughs> it's okay. We get to talk about my other favorite Microsoft product a little bit exactly. later. <laughs> so I, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about what makes good graphs, because like you said, AGU's coming up, people are defending, and it's easy to hear these things and say, oh yeah, of course, and then find yourself not practicing them. I do it a lot. Yes. And have to remind myself of these things uh, pretty much every eight months or so. <laughs> exactly. Um, I've I've started a special list that I can go back to every time I sit down to make a figure and say, okay, what were these things that made me bad? I mean, it's a great thing to do, and I did it at GSA for sure. I walked around with one of my friends who's a very good um, – he's very good at graphic design, which is something I'm not super mm -hmm. good at, and I'm not sure if you feel totally confident – you know, and saying which colors go with what and what looks visually appealing. And we walked the poster session for a good hour just talking about that looks really good regardless of that data. You know, this looks really bad, even though it's a really good data set, the data aren't presented in the best light. So therefore you just walk past it because it's not visually pleasing. Yeah. And I mean, posters and all that, I'm definitely not really confident in my color design skills. I'm barely confident enough to, you know, pick out the right shirt to go with khakis. <laughs> and that's pretty, pretty easy. Yeah. Nerd problems. <laughs> exactly. So the first one, and I would say the one that you can tell almost any presenter, speaker, 
graph maker is to use bigger <laughs> font. Yep, exactly. And I think it gets worse the um, the sort of earlier on you are in your career because you don't want to call attention to your stuff because you might get a question asked. <laughs> So I've right. noticed that my fonts have just gradually gotten bigger as I get more confident. So that's something. <laughs> well, and I heard someone uh, say, it may even be in Michael Alley's book, The Craft of Scientific Presentation, about in round numbers, your smallest font size should be, I think it was the mean age in the room or something <laughs> like that. Uh, <laughs> that's excellent. Which isn't a bad guideline. It's actually not. <laughs> um, that's pretty excellent. <laughs> So I generally try to stick, I mean, I don't care what graphing program you use, whether it's MATLAB, Python, Excel, Igor, Kaleidograph, the defaults in all of them are yes. awful and they're not big enough. It should look wrong when exactly. you Exactly. And I just had this make an RGSA poster. I made the, the font for the title was 100 point. And I thought, this looks ridiculous. <laughs> and it didn't look ridiculous. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it seemed dumb and ill-advised, but no, um, it was totally worth it because you could see it from down the lane, which is what you want in a poster session in particular. Well, yeah. And you have to remember that people that are looking at this plot, it's their first time seeing it, and it's probably, depending on what kind of crowd you have at your talk or poster, it could be the first time seeing that type of plot for some of them. So you have to make things obvious. Right, exactly. And if someone can't read something, I mean, they're not going to spend the extra time to get out their glasses to go look for it. If I couldn't read it from, you know, five feet away, I just kept walking. And you definitely don't want that to happen. So this is actually probably the most important thing, really. Yeah, if you have to lean into your poster to read something, <laughs> yeah, not okay. Exactly. Uh, and on your slides, really try projecting them in the room if you can. Yes. Or on a similar projector, mm -hmm. because projectors do horrible, horrible things <laughs> to graphics. <laughs> and you think that font's big enough until you realize that the pixels are, you know, an inch by an inch when it exactly. gets projected. Yeah, that's a good, good idea. That, uh, you know, here we're telling you to add more stuff to make things bigger, to make your marks bolder. And now I'm going to say the next rule is no extra ink. <laughs> so I don't know what you mean by this. <laughs> so by this, I mean removing chart clutter. Ah, okay. And there, I, I actually have some disagreements with people on this. Okay. Uh, frequently. <laughs> so I, I am of the idea that... Your charts don't need a full frame around them. They don't need that silly background grid. Hmm. They don't need any of that hmm. when you're presenting it. And now, this is not true for publication, because for a publication, you're looking for somebody to be able to take a ruler, look at your data, you know, extract something from it, test their own ideas on it. So having it with a full box with tick marks all around and or a grid is a helpful guide. Right. But nobody's going to be coming up and drawing on your slides or drawing on your poster, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so all that stuff is just extra visual clutter. It's extra things to process, extra things to look through to see the data. So I remove it. Hmm, that's an interesting point. Um, I guess I could see that, that you could get caught up in that. I mean, if you want to really make a point about a certain well, a point about a certain data point, I guess you could just draw a line, especially if you're giving a presentation to, you know, visually draw the the audience into that one specific point. But otherwise, I guess you're probably right. That would get cluttersome, especially if you're only looking at a slide for less than a minute. Well, or people that, you know, if you have a slide that's got several trend lines on it uh, or lines made by data, and then you have, and say those are black lines that are thin, which we'll get to <laughs> later, uh, and then you have a grid behind that, it can get really confusing. Uh, yeah. Now, I could see where that would be distracting. That's another thing of you should definitely try to look at it, you know, in the room where you're going to be giving it because that should become more obvious than just sitting in front of your computer. Yeah, exactly. And 
I mean, if if you're x-axis, say you're plotting something that is a time series that occurs over many, many years, uh, number of earthquakes per year in Oklahoma to be one that you're going to see a lot yeah. at AGU <laughs> this year. If it says 2009, 2010, 2011, and so on, on the tick marks on the x-axis, why do you need to specify that that's date in years? That's unnecessary chart clutter. Hmm. Interesting. It is obvious that it is date in years. Now, if it just says one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, that could be years, months, seconds, milliseconds. We have no idea. So, of course, you need a right, label then. Exactly. But if it's something that's an obvious, just purely blatantly obvious label, dates are the most common one. You, you don't need to yeah, label Yeah, that's a good it. point. I would, I would definitely agree with that. That's only taking up space. And oftentimes, it would squish your dates together anyway because it's making space in that program for the label. So... I, I will yeah. I will agree with that cautiously. <laughs> yeah, I would say some people say that you know it's too much removed or it's but it's it's a little bit a matter of personal preference. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that comes from the Edward Tufte school of thought. <laughs> the simplicity. Uh, though he's even more aggressive than I am about removing uh, there are a lot of his plots that just have a horizontal line for the x-axis right, and that's it. Yeah, that's a that's a bit simplistic i think yeah it's a little bit too much infographic-y it's great for outreach things but not necessarily for a scientific presentation um but so another one (laughs) that uh i don't know if you run into this a lot but using redundant information in the plots you can really benefit from it or it can just get really annoying (laughs) see now (laughs) This one, you know, we sort of go by the by the adage, you know, tell them what you're doing, tell them again, and then, you know, tell them again what you did. So I think that this one should be taken, it depends on what you're trying to present and to what type of audience, because I think sometimes you do have to be redundant. True. And so as an example of what we're talking about here, uh, let's say that you had some kind of plot of time during your experiment and temperature, and that you colored the data points by temperature so that effectively the data point color corresponded to their position on the y-axis, which is already why you made the graph. <laughs> I, you I laugh, like it. but I see Oh, it. yeah. No, and I'm a, I'm a fan of it. Um, we actually, I saw some... At some paleo mag talks at GSA, they would color code different different um, sort of thermal demag temperatures with in the spectrum order, and so you could easily tell, you know, if it was a true gradient or if the data were skipping around because they were color coded spectrally. And I actually thought that was a really neat way to do it. Well, but there the color coding wasn't coding what was on the y-axis that of the plot, true. right? That is true. I mean, it sort yeah. of, it sort no, so of was, th- but yeah, you're right. But not directly, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's where that's where I think it's useful. So, say we go back to this example of you're plotting uh, temperature across time during an experiment. If you then color code that by, oh, I don't know, electrical conductivity or some other really interesting measure during yes. your experiment— you can see how that evolves with temperature in that one simple yeah. line plot. And that's yeah, that's beautiful. That's, that I love true. that. But if you're doing temperature, it's already on there. So what a waste. I understand. Yeah. And and that then then you have people wondering, why is the color of this line changing? Instead of saying, Oh, okay, I see what the interesting temperature, you know, result of some endothermic reaction right. was or something right. like that. Okay. Yep. Uh, no, I understand that. That is now mm-hmm. For earthquakes, let's say if you're using size of the dot to represent the size of the earthquake, the magnitude of the earthquake, you could use color as well to emphasize the point. I think the size does it pretty well, so you could use color for something like age or uh, depth, you know, something like that, uh, and avoid that redundant information. And then you can pack a ton of information (laughs) on a graph. That's exactly what I was just thinking. So if you... It's basically a third dimension to your graph if you were to use it 
correctly. So not something on the X or Y axis, but some third dimension. Exactly. That does pack a ton of information without cluttering up with extra words. And you can actually squeeze three to four dimensions out of your data points. That's a neat idea. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I like that. So you can use, you know, the point shape. Is right. it a triangle? Is it a circle? Is it a square? Is right. it a star? The point color, the point size. And then I, I have even seen people use things like the point outline color, but that gets really Yeah, I think absurd. that's a little much. <laughs> once you've used those three, yeah, once follow. you've used those three things plus the X and Y axis, that's a bit much. But um, no, that's a, that's a good tip. So that's the caveat you have written here unless you know what you're doing <laughs> yes it, it's very easy to make indecipherable plots i've done it more times than i <laughs> want to <admit>. yeah <laughs> but you know that's that's why we're so doing I, this so people can learn from our mistakes too <laughs> yeah and, and so uh what other things have you noticed in plots that you like or don't uh, like. Man, I really love that coloring thing. I'm glad that we brought that up because I hadn't really thought about that before. Um, but when you talk about color, <laughs> you have written down here, which is absolutely true. Don't use the default color scheme. You know, actually do some research on what is visually pleasing. But while you're doing that, you should make sure that if your colors are very important to your data, that you make your color schemes colorblind friendly. Because there are a lot of people that are colorblind and they're going to miss the point of your stuff entirely if you don't sort of take this into account. And it wasn't until I took a class with somebody that was colorblind who kept pointing this out to us that I sort of got sensitive to the issue. Um, But there are a lot more people that are colorblind than you know of. So it's actually something you should keep in mind. Yeah. And so about 8% of all males have some form of Mm -hmm. colorblindness. And there's a website called We Are Colorblind that we'll link in the show notes that shows you examples. Yes. It lets you simulate colorblindness on different things, and it's fascinating. Yes, yes it really is. Um, and they'll also give you ideas for, you know, instead of using this red-green dichotomy that you were using before, you know, what are better recognizable shades to people who are colorblind um, to help you uh, not do those things in your plots. Oh, yeah. And what are the default line colors when you make a plot in MATLAB or Python or anything? Blue, (laughs) red, green. Exactly. Yep. (laughs) And then in in MATLAB especially, the the green in Python is pretty dark. Mm -hmm. uh, So it it projects okay. It almost looks black, which can be a problem. Mm -hmm. But the MATLAB default green is this really bright chartreuse that is perfectly invisible when you project uh, Excel it. Excel as well. It's that same really light green color. That's awful. So, yeah, that's one of my pet peeves. Yeah. Yeah, so don't use the defaults. There's a really nice set of colors. Uh, and I'm going to see if I can figure out how to say this. Uh, probably not. It's T-A-B-L-E-A-U colors. Tableau. Yeah, Tableau, maybe. Uh, There's a set called the Tableau 20 that, well, there's the 10, the 20. They're really nice, very good color palettes uh, that you can use to plot your lines. I have these saved as a text expander snippet, and anytime I make plots, this gets thrown in place of the default color Mm -hmm. scheme. Uh, And a lot of people comment on it. They're like, oh, well, how did you, you know, what, what are these colors? They're really nice, and that's where they come from. Excellent. Uh, the, the other one, if you are using, you know, how sometimes you can make these, uh, kind of heat map type things, right? Where you have a grid of data, like X, Y, and temperature, mm-hmm. and you make a kind of like a shaded contour mm-hmm. map. The default for almost everything until the last version of MATLAB was a color map called jet or rainbow. It used to be called rainbow. <laughs> And you know this color map, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> this color map is pure evil. <laughs> I love I love that it, it upsets is, you so much. But yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> it's very nonlinear. In fact, uh, I'm going to link a video in where they talk about a new default color map 
uh, that is linear that is being used in a lot of graphing packages now. You should watch it. It's a, I think, a 20-minute video. Mm-hmm. It goes through the color theory of how color goes from data, gets encoded to color, gets projected to a monitor, to your eye, to your brain. It's an incredibly complicated process. And color maps like JET can actually make perfectly smooth data Appear. look like it's segmented yep. or ringed. That's what I remember um, discussing. It was actually with this guy that was colorblind. Um, but it worked into that discussion, and I thought that was really interesting because it's that stupid blue-red color map that we're all used to seeing, and that when I was shown data, that was, yeah, there wasn't a lot of change to it, but it makes it look like it. That was kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I am uh, trying to pull up right now. There is a paper that... I'll link in the show note as well. Yeah, here we go. Um, it's a visualization, visualization viewpoints article uh, from IEEE that's called Rainbow Color Maps Still Considered Harmful. <laughs> and it shows examples of how this happens. Uh, there's another article also linked in that is a little terrifying. Uh, this was talked about at the Python conference. It's uh, Borkin et al., And they're actually looking at uh, evaluating artery visualizations, how doctors diagnose if you have heart disease, if you have artery blockages. Mm -hmm. The default color map for the machine to do this when they're taking, I believe it's like a sonogram, is, uh, yeah, it's computer tomography tomography and geography, CTA, Mm -hmm. um, is JET. Wow. And they took the exact same data sets and showed it to doctors with JET, and then showed it to doctors with a true linear color map. And the JET color map provided a much higher rate of missed or misdiagnosis of heart disease. That is terrifying. So the JET color map has potential to actually harm your health. So when I say it makes me physically angry, it's partially justified. (laughs) That is terrifying. Um, I do find this funny because I was trying to find... Uh, as we were talking about JET, so I Googled it as well because I was trying to find a website about it that I'd read. And two of the top ones are blogs post about the JET color map must die. (laughs) Uh So, yeah, this is one of those things, like, everyone hates it, it's bad, but we still use it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know how many times somebody has put up a, a gravity anomaly map or something, and they use jet, and they go, well, as you can see, the edge of the the basin, the sedimentary basin, is right here. <laughs> and it's like, no, actually, the gradient's steeper, much further away. That's the edge of your color yep. map. Yep. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it can be bad, but we should move <laughs> on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can feel myself getting worked up about this. Um, that's true. So, labels with units. <laughs> Oh, yes. Absolutely. There's, when I see something that says wavelength, 770, let's say, is one of the tick marks. Mm -hmm. That could be 770 nanometers, in which case we're talking about a green laser Mm -hmm. pointer. That makes me happy. (laughs) Could be 770 meters, in which case we're talking about very low frequency waves, which also make me happy, but they're incredibly different (laughs) physics. Uh, Yes, and that goes across every piece of data that you use you know i mean nobody understands pmag data except for other paleomagnetists so you got to throw in your amps per meter squared for people to actually realize what you're measuring and that's not a lot of extra stuff (laughs) it's a real easy thing to do so even if you want to be simplistic put the units and the standard disclaimer, you know, use SI units. Do we have to say that? No. Do we have to say that? You know, I, I'm sure we have talked about reporting plate rates in furlongs per fortnight just to see what happens. Uh, <laughs> uh, furlongs per fortnight is my favorite, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it, it's one of those things that there have been several talks where you see time or velocity and you can infer what the units are, but you're not 100% sure. And it makes you just a little bit mm-hmm. leery. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's something easy to prevent yes. when you're making yep, your plots. Exactly. It takes two seconds to do. 
And... And what... Oh, good. Well, going along with your labels with your units, make sure that your actual X and Y graphs, you can see where what you're labeling, that your tick marks that are showing up show up, right? <laughs> yeah, that they're, that they're long enough or big enough uh, to show Exactly. Up. And so, uh, um, so many times, um, and I see this with people doing PMAG plots too. I mean, people, usually our students will have, you know, sort of smaller little tick marks. And it makes a big deal when you glance at an orthogonal demagnetization plot where those tick marks are and what they stand for because, you know, those are orders of magnitude difference in the strength of a sample. And if you have them correctly labeled, you see it instantly. And if you have to go looking for it, then your data is meaningless. So. Absolutely. And, I mean, while you're talking about seeing things on the graph – just make it all chunky. Make the outlines for your scatter points big. Make sure you use you know a couple point wide lines unless it totally obscures what you're trying to yes. show. Because it it just makes it so much easier for somebody looking at it to pick out what it is. And don't be afraid to draw lines or highlight. Not too much, <laughs> you know. Remember, not not no extra ink. But if there's something important, don't just say, "Well, as you can see in this graph, blah blah." Yes. No, you have to you have to point it right. out. So you don't want to have grid lines on your graph, fine. But if one particular data point is, you know, the pivotal piece you're talking about, highlight that. That's fine. Absolutely do that. Because when you're talking about graphs, especially if they're on a poster, you're not always there to explain it. So you want the reader to instantly take in everything you're trying to tell them. Because if not, you've sort of failed at communicating your science, which is, you know, really bad for you. Yeah, I mean, or if it's in a talk, having where you click the slide and a annotation pops up on the graph is a hundred times yes. more effective than trying to circle it with the laser pointer <laughs> from an oblique angle across oh, the room. Oh, I hope we're over that too, but you're probably right. People need to be reminded of that. <laughs> yeah it's I mean, there are some talks that i just kind of wish there were a cat in the room because it would go insane exactly. with the laser pointer usage. exactly like there should be an anti-laser pointer that you could just turn off those people's wildly gesticulating lasers because <laughs> <laughs> no matter how good your graph is if you're circling that thing with the laser pointer you've already lost me you know, and I don't want to get too far off track here, but my favorite laser pointer story is I was at a conference in Aurora, Colorado, oh, it's years ago now, and the uh, hotel that we were in, the ballroom had mirrored walls, <laughs> and anytime somebody would go off the edge of the slide with the laser pointer, it would go around these mirrored walls and inevitably find some random person's head. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it was it was a little annoying by the end oh, of the week that's awesome <laughs> so i mean we're, we're saying a lot of things to not do but th that th all this being said there are a lot of really excellent presentations and graphs out there so watch out for them and just notice what those people do that you like and go up and bug them about it because people like to hear that you liked their graphics. Uh, exactly, and that's how you know you're doing better too is when somebody compliments you on, on your graphics. And especially at AGU, there are a plethora of posters that you don't understand the science behind. Go look at them anyway. <laughs> and the ones that grab your yes. attention, just look at how they lay things out. I mean, if this is what, you know, like I have chosen, like John is choosing, this is what you're going to be doing the rest of your life. Like take some time on the front end to figure out what looks good and try to recreate it. I mean, not exactly, obviously, that's plagiarism, but right. especially look at things that you don't understand. So if you're not a meteorologist, go look at the meteorology posters at AGU. Then you won't be distracted by the data itself, and you can pay attention to the actual look of the posters. Yeah, I mean, for example, my office mate who's involved with uh, the IODP, the Integrated Ocean Drilling mm -hmm. Program, where they go out and drill into the seafloor and get samples, uh, made an excellent poster that has got unending compliments. Uh, I don't know how long 
it took him to do this in Illustrator, but he actually drew the drilling vessel. And the poster is like, it has the vessel at the top, the ocean, the seafloor. All of the outlines for the boxes are riser pipe with gauges and valves and all this that he drew. I mean, it is absolutely a work of art. And so many people stopped at his poster just because of the graphic design. That's awesome. It took an incredible amount of volume away from the posters around (laughs) it, even though they may not have necessarily been really interested in triaxial tests on these samples. Uh, They were after they looked at the poster. Uh, Yeah, so that's just an even more important uh, point as to why you should put the time in for this. Because no matter how good your data is, if it looks crappy, no one cares. Yeah, and the easiest way to make your data look crappy, and I know this is going to get me in trouble with you and possibly other people, <laughs> uh, is to use Microsoft Excel. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of people out there that grew up with Excel, and so it's their their graph of choice. I will tell you, though, that we just export our graphs as JPEGs and trace them in Illustrator to make them look good. Oh, (laughs) I know that killed you a little bit, but (laughs) yeah, I mean, there's so many great graphing programs out there. You don't have to know. I mean, I I use Python. I evangelize it, but you have to know a little bit of programming. You don't have to do that at all. There are programs like Kaleidograph or Igor that we've talked about in the past that make stunning graphs and they're not that expensive. Like Shan said, this is what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life. And Life should be more than turning off drop shadow defaults in Excel. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. I don't want to think about how much how much cumulative time has taken me to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, it's terrifying when yeah, you add it up. All the things you have to do, you know, it's 10 clicks to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. Change the data point yeah. defaults and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so no longer those silly shady yeah, diamonds. Yeah, that awful and... pastel color scheme off of there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, you're right. You're mm-hmm. right. Yeah. <laughs> and if you do have to pull data off someone's graph, there are a lot of tools to do that uh, that we should talk about in another yes, show. Yeah. But know that they're out there. Yeah, I think this one will live on um, into the future for sure. But, I mean, it's not just – I want you to be able to mention these too, John. You've looked at them more than I have. So besides just going and looking at things you like, there's – other resources out there too yeah so i mentioned uh, edward tufty before uh, i've gone to some of his seminars and he's got a series of books that are really good uh, they're a little bit too infographic oriented i think okay. uh, so you have to take what you read in them and scale it back a tiny bit for scientific graphics i i think just an opinion um, but they're really good books and they have tons of examples of really good visualization. Uh, there's also a blog by Nathan Yu called Flowing Data that is absolutely stunning examples of data visualization. There is some subscription part to it, but I don't do that. I just look at what he what's out there, yeah. What he posts publicly, right. publicly. Um, he also has written some books that I've read, uh, thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, so his books are, uh, there's three of them, Visualize This, Data Points, and uh, there's another book that's in a similar series, not by him, called Data Fluency that I've heard good things about but have not uh, read. Uh, so those are some good ones uh, for how to graph data. There's a plethora of books on presentations, uh, Craft a Scientific Presentation by Michael Alley, uh, all of the presentation Zen books are really yeah. good. I don't know if you have any favorites. Um, I, I've seen some of those as well. And um, yes, I agree. Those are really good. And there are a lot of resources at your respective universities too for not just students but for um, faculty as well in helping you with these kind of things. So I highly suggest that you go search that out because there's somebody that knows what looks good better than you do probably. Um and I will, a word of warning, too. If you go to try to download some of these things, like Kaleidograph, please give it a try, even though on their webpage they have things written in Comic Sans. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you, you have to give yourself a little bit of time to get used to the software. You can't use it for 20 minutes and go, this is awful. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know we're all inclined to do that, but you have to learn how to use the tool. Yep. And also, if you do use the tool, please pay them the money. Yes. It's a real tragedy that software piracy is as rampant as it is in academia. Yes. Where, you know, you have a disk that gets passed around <laughs> the entire lab group that has the license to some piece of software. And software developers have to eat. It's a hard game. And if you like the application to keep working with new operating systems or to keep getting new features, they need that money to be able to keep working on it or it's going to go away. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, a lot of universities help you with the cost of these things too. So before you do that yeah, exactly. pirating, you know, look for those resources that can help you. And you can write this money into tiny little grants that you can get from lots of different places to pay for these these sort of tools. I mean, or or there's a ton of open source tools that yes. are in various states of development, some of them better than the paid uh, ones. Yes, and I think that's something that we'll probably wait till next time to talk about. Um, but just to mention it, you know, we, we talk about Illustrator a lot because I know we both like that. And that's quite expensive software. Um, and if you're not with a university that's paying for that for you. But Inkscape, I just want to mention really quickly, and we could talk about it at a later date, is freeware. So I know you like that. And open source. Um, so there are really yeah. good things out there as alternatives, just like John just said, that are possibly even better than the paid version. But we can leave that for another design show next time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I do want to point out, because that it is a little time sensitive, that if you do use Illustrator or Creative Cloud and you are interested in going to that subscription service, uh, it is on sale until Black Friday, oh. I believe. I was told this by one of our listeners. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely do that then. Yeah, so that's something that you should check out. Uh, Illustrator is one thing that I have not made the jump to open source on purely because I know Illustrator, all the key commands and shortcuts for it by right. heart. Right, Well. And I just haven't wanted to relearn those yet. <laughs> I want you to be proud of me because I know how open source pro you are that I've downloaded Inkscape and have been dabbling with it. And so just so I can give a good review of it, number one, but also because I fundamentally, you know, agree with that sort of open sourceness. So we'll see how it works in comparison with Illustrator, which I also use nearly exclusively. So, uh, Yeah, and I will say that, you know, paying... My Creative Cloud, my educational Creative Cloud membership is over three hundred and fifty dollars yeah. a year. Uh, that's getting old. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, but I I do agree. We we were going to talk about that and posters. That's probably for another time. Maybe next week. Maybe not. Uh, it it could be kind of fun to see what some of our listeners think about this. So if you have anything that you really like or hate in graphics or tools that you want to use uh, to make posters or questions about making posters or presentations or anything like that, uh, send them to us. And I think it'd be a lot of fun to talk about that on one uh, of our right, shows. Right, exactly. Because this is what a lot of us are choosing to do. Even if you're a student, you're definitely going to have to do this at one time or another. And I guarantee you, John and I have made all of these mistakes that we're complaining so much about. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah, I, I look at some of my lab reports from my sophomore year and just, <laughs> oh, it hurts. Exactly. So let's help each other out to make all of our science better. So please let us know about that. But Or just send us some plots. I mean, we had uh, our computer users group meeting that was uh, about a week ago now. We sent out a data set and had everybody plot the same data set in their tool of choice. And then we shared our plots and talked about how we made them. And that was a lot of fun. You know, we had 10 people that were ultra critical of plots sitting in a room talking about the exact same data plotted 10 different ways. Um, I think this is always a useful exercise. Uh, one of the first things we do in my intro geology class, because students don't look at a lot of, say, stratigraphic columns, which is a very large plot type thing that geologists use all the time. Well, sedimentary geologists use all the time, right? And... 
(laughs) We spend nearly an entire class period just going out on the internet, finding bad ones and finding good ones and talking about their (laughs) merits. And I thought that was a big waste of time. But in the reviews of the class, a lot of people cited that as one of the most useful things because you just don't take the time to say, what looks crappy? What looks good? Because you just think you know. So taking the time to do it was actually really useful for the students, and I will continue to do that. So it was kind of neat to do. Yeah, and I mean, I know that a lot of the folks that are listening say, oh, gee, I thought this was a geology show. <laughs> and uh, I promise this is very related. And there's a lot of tools that you would use in the field, uh, things like nomographs that actually let you do calculations without a computer or calculator, uh, right? Exactly, but uh, you better make sure that your nomograph has really clear lines so you can mm-hmm. see exactly the data that you need to see so this is really an it's a boring thing oh well it's not boring to john but it's boring to the rest of us <laughs> <laughs> but it's something that's really really important to your success marketing your data for everyone's consumption and you know the better you are just like you said about your office mate you know you make something really creative and exceptional quality in terms of graphics you get a lot of people who wouldn't be interested in your stuff interested in your stuff yeah so so (laughs) we obviously both feel strongly about this (laughs) i i will i will put my soapbox back under the desk (laughs) mine i never get off mine come on now (laughs) i mean yeah we we do carry them around but (laughs) uh I I think that we have an interesting and very totally different direction fun paper this week. I am super excited about this one. I mean, mostly because we're both meteorology nerds, but this is something that everyone gets excited about in terms of weather. And we're having a lot of weird weather. I mean, today, what we're, we're recording on Wednesday. So there's, you know, been a lot of tornadoes and hail reports and big wind as this big front is sweeping through the country. So this is a very timely fun paper, I think. Yeah, and this seems to happen every year somewhere, and it always makes the news. And <laughs> it's thunder snow. <laughs> it sounds so menacing and awesome. <laughs> when really it's just weird. Uh, yeah. You're... <laughs> You're outside and it's snowing, and then you hear thunder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not not what you'd expect. It's very disconcerting. It's like seeing someone out of context, and you don't immediately grasp what's happening because you have a certain feel about what should happen in a thunderstorm, but or in a snowstorm. And then, yeah, you see a flash of lightning, and you're like, "Was that just what I thought it was?" But this paper talks about a really specific yeah. thunder snow event. So this is the Groundhog Day, every meteorologist's favorite holiday, uh, February 2011 storm. Right, exactly, which I remember because we got a ton of snow that year, and we got a ton of snow on that day as well. Yes, we did. (laughs) And we also got thunder snow. It actually inspired a Twitter handle of someone I know, this exact event. so awesome (laughs) yeah it's it's a really interesting phenomenon because normally you think of snow being this boring stratiform cloud deck precipitation and it has nothing to do with convective cells right exactly um usually that's what gets meteorologists super excited is convection and i mean this is pretty rare to get convection in a snow event yeah, and if you are doing field work in the winter, you normally don't think about lightning as a hazard. <laughs> yes, exactly. But it can be. Exactly. I was actually super surprised by how rare this is. Um, so this paper, which is titled Synoptic Scale Outbreak of Self-Initiated Upward Lightning from Tall Structures During the Central U.S. Blizzard of 1st and 2nd February 2011 um, by Warner et al., they look at lightning strikes from the lightning national lightning detection network right and they have some stats about how rare thunder snow is and i was shocked um looking at the nldn revealed only 7700 flashes out of a total of over 1 million occurred with surface temperatures of zero degrees celsius or below 
during six winter seasons that they looked at. That's an incredibly low amount of lightning during snow events. Yeah, it's it's not that common at all. Uh, one of the authors on this paper, Walt Lyons, uh, was actually at that conference that I was talking about earlier with the mirrored laser <laughs> pointer story, uh, talking about all of his research into uh, unusual lightning events. And no, this is just a totally fascinating <laughs> idea. And this paper looked at, well, thunder snow is not common, but there's an interesting correlation with the location of these events and cities. Right. And s- or tall structures. And so by events, we're talking about lightning strikes during snowstorms. Um, and this was really strange. This paper actually has a lot of really cool data to be taken from it. I mean, it's, it's kind of long, but it was incredibly readable. And it has a lot of information about snow events, about lightning events. And then, like John just said, it's this weird intersection because they were saying in this paper that most of the lightning that occurred during the storm, and they knew the storm was coming, so they were ready to record this data and everything. Um, but greater than 93% of all the lightning was associated with these self-initiated upward lightning events, which comes from structures, like human structures. Yeah. Well, and so they were actually trying to look for sprites uh, due to this massive charge movement that that normally occurs during these type of Mm -hmm. events, but they didn't get that in this event. Uh, So they went back and combed through more data and found this. And... (laughs) But, you know, they talk about all the data reduction that you have to do and filtering out bad data, repeated data. Uh, it's pretty complicated. I did find it interesting that the small, in quote, currents of two kiloamps <laughs> yeah. were considered valid. <laughs> uh, yes. And when they talked about short structures, the structures were greater than 80 meters tall. <laughs> right. So, you know, this is uh, order of magnitude. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I noticed that in a couple of different <laughs> um, parts of this paper as well. Um, but it was cool because so they knew this was coming. It showed up just like it was forecast. And just like John said, a lot of times you get these sprites, which are those cool little shoots of lightning that come from the top of the clouds. They look really neat. They're really strange things. They usually occur with these positive lightning strikes that often happen with these winter storms. So they got very excited about that. And that's why they were going to study this storm. And then we're super shocked when like 96% of the lightning strikes were not these positive ones that they wanted, but they were negative ones. And they were associated with human-made structures. And how do we know that? Well, they the snow snowstorm also went over the Great Lakes, and they didn't see the kind of lightning when it was out over the lakes as they did when it was in the cities, like Chicago. Yeah, and you know they even saw it on things like uh, power line towers for high tension lines and windmills and wind farms in Oklahoma. Yes. <laughs> Those and were the short structures. The, the, <laughs> yeah. The, the National Lightning Detection Network locates lightning strikes in real time with a, a pretty surprising precision. So you can actually see in the figures in this paper the lightning events clustering around windmills in a field mm-hmm. of them. It's fascinating. Uh, yeah, and then obviously they looked at it as it went over Chicago, and they don't have windmills in the city, but there are a lot of really tall buildings, right? So there's... There's the Trump Tower, which is pointing uh-huh, out. Yeah, exactly, which was responsible <laughs> yeah. for like five different lightning strikes or something. Um, and then also, actually, this is figure five in the paper. It's really cool. Um, there's a bunch of events clustered around the Trump Tower and then around the Willis Tower, which is another 100 meters taller than Trump Tower. And you can see very definitively the lightning is occurring right there and nowhere else. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of neat. Well, and another cool thing about this event was there's enough wind. that So normally you would get this uh, corona effect Mm -hmm. that actually forms kind of a skin of charge on the building and shields it uh, from being the source or sink of these currents. But the wind was blowing fast enough that that actually was pretty much just blown away and neutralized. Uh, So the buildings could build up charge of the right polarity 
And these were upward going strikes. So it really wasn't the cloud striking the building. It was the building striking the cloud. I thought that was the coolest thing. Um, apparently, there's already been studies about this, especially in Japan, where these thunder snow events happen more frequently. And there's this wind threshold for those coronas staying in place. And so I thought that was really cool. It said the wind was in excess of eight meters a second. And therefore, the corona effect wasn't into account, which is why you don't see lightning strikes associated with you know all the convection that happens all the time it doesn't just happen like this but in this case that wind was able to get rid of that effect and then you did see those upward pointed lightning strikes it's it's kind of a really cool concept that i really hadn't thought about before yeah and i mean they do a lot of reanalysis of data and going into it really in depth here even analysis of radar data, uh, very good time series analysis, though uh, in figure nine there is a jet color bar. Sorry. <laughs> I just uh, had that pulled up, yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, it's it was a really interesting paper to read, and if you hear Thunder Snow this winter, uh, well, one, you should record it and send yes. it to us, and we will play it. <laughs> but you should also think about this and think about if you are near any tall structures that could be inducing these Or events. even moderately tall structures. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the short right, windmills, exactly. in um, And you know what? With El Nino in place, I know I keep harping on this, <laughs> um, but this could be <laughs> an event that happens in you know Oklahoma and Texas. We're supposed to be colder. We're supposed to be wetter than normal. So this might occur even more during this winter than it has in the past. So we'll see. Yep, absolutely. So if you have any comments on this or any fun paper ideas for us uh, or plots, comments on the show that you'd like to send us, we really love hearing from you. And you can get a hold of us. How, Shannon? Well, you can email us any of those at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, you can always tweet us any fun paper ideas or any awesome pictures of the thunder snow you're having. Um, we are at Don't Panic Geo. John is at Geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or fund.